millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I make my own rules, one Banco party at a time. I write history and I read celebrities. I am JMZ. Life is a classroom, and I'm here to teach. And now, the second part of our conversation with Noah Gwynn. So, Noah, what kinds of sources do you get to use in your work? And do you have a favorite type of source for thinking about housewives and households in medieval France that you get to consult alongside farce plays? So, I'm, as I said, I'm a theorist and not an historian. And so my answers probably should be about um, theory feminist, queer, post-structuralist theory. Um, I'm deeply engaged in the book with uh, thinkers like Derrida, who writes about ethics and justice, Bakhtin, who writes about carnival and festive culture, uh, Judith Butler on performativity and gender. And I'm especially indebted to um, the political anthropologist James Scott, who uh, has helped me to see the ways in which visible signs of ideological co-optation are actually a misleading transcript um, of the real operations of power. Um, so if I were to say, uh, you know, one of the really formative um, sort of sources for me would be James Scott's book, Domination and the Arts of Resistance. Um, but since you guys are historians, I thought I should probably say a little bit about historical scholarship. Um, and I am uh, a big reader of history. Uh, especially indebted to uh, historians of the household, since most farces are domestic farces um, set in usually a lower-class household. Um, I've had to do a lot of research on the history of the household. And one of the best books that I know on that subject is by Mary Hartman. It's a book called The Household and the Making of History. And that book helps me to see all of the ways in which common women and her period is really the medieval, the Middle Ages through modernity, um, how common women have been able to make history from within the household um, and the ways in which the household ends up being a place of social and political transformation rather than you know, a, a site of, of domination. So um, actually together, really, Scott and Hartman um, sort of reveal a great deal about farce. 
showing us how um, the real operations of power are not all, always historically visible, that they don't always show up in the historical record, but they can be discerned uh, sort of in, in what uh, Scott would call the sort of um, the realm of the infra-political, that which is sort of below the identifiable spectrum, but is nonetheless a political form of action. Who was your favorite Bravo of Liberty and why? I struggle with the question because I love so many of them, um, but I would probably have to answer Nini, Nini Leakes, because of all of that power and the wit and the rage and the very occasional but deeply touching vulnerability. Um, and I know she's kind of a controversial choice, especially right now, um, and given what she did on the virtual reunions, sort of closing the computer and refusing to come back. Um, I'm kind of worried that she may not be invited back to that show, but it's it's pretty clear that she's sort of a driving force in the in the in the franchise and re- really um, generates a lot of the interest. So I, if I were pressed, I would probably have to say Nini. But what do we think is going on with Nini? You can you know, I've never I've never I've never gotten it. I, I, I've never understood Nini. I mean, I like the blue. Maybe it's the same. Maybe it's what she says in confessionals. I do agree that it was a, a touching moment when she had her breakdown. I wonder if I personally think that her time is done, and it didn't help that she slammed her computer. Um, but I also wonder. If she were to kind of turn this around or keep my interest, I would want to see more vulnerability. Yeah. I mean, what, what do you, I feel like she's jumped the shark, but what do you think about her future in the show? I mean, I worry about it too. And maybe it's true that it's, you know, best for her to go out in a blaze of glory. The thing about, uh, I guess that franchise in particular is that, um, Characters like Nini back themselves into a corner really easily because there's so much aggression that they can find themselves isolated and needing to rebuild. And the, if you've really burnt your bridges, it's really hard to, to build alliances again. Um, but I guess I find that sort of touching about Nini, too, that she really did on this most recent season find herself kind of without an ally and had to figure out what to do. And she did her level best. I'm not sure that there was much more to be done in in that um, in that respect. Although you're right, if she had um, been more vulnerable and less aggressive, she probably would have, you know, found more purchase. Thank you. I mean, not to carry your favorite celebrity, but I'm struggling with her these last few seasons. So I I feel like these are all controversial choices. If you choose the nice one, they're inevitably kind of boring. Um, And if you choose the mean one, you're saddled with someone who's kind of mean. Can we dig more into ROA and the ways that it resonates with themes in your research? So in particular, maybe we can talk about the Greg, Nini, Peter showdown that happened in Mexico during season six, and you can take that wherever you would like. I mean, I I find that scene to be endlessly fascinating. And um, there's so many aspects to it that's sort of hard to know where to begin. Um, But the gesture of calling Peter a bitch is obviously the thing that 
everyone had a hard time letting go of um, and something that needed to be processed endlessly. Um, the genius of Nene Leakes is that she, on the one hand, acknowledged that, yes, she called him a bitch and knew, in a sense, that she needed to apologize. But her apology ended up being just an endless reiteration of bitch, 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 bitch. Yes, I called you a bitch. It's that gesture of, um, uh, <laughs> this is not your show, it's mine, which is really her, that's her masterpiece. That's where she's, her, her wheelhouse really is, is I can claim the camera's attention um, with, it, with utter ease. Um, and demeaning my best friend's husband, it, it apparently was the way to do it in that particular instance. And I do, I find it really interesting in, in that respect. Um, there, there are so many things, though, about that episode that are so interesting, because um, the whole episode seems to be about um, men trying to tell women how they ought to behave. Um, Peter is one of them, but he's certainly not the only one. And there's a lot of sort of tone policing and um, you shouldn't use that particular kind of language. You should use, you know, more moderate or more polite or more civilized kinds of language. But of course, that's not why we watch the show. We watch the show to see people losing their shit and saying things that they probably shouldn't say and then trying to figure out how to repair the damage that they've, that they've caused. Um, and clearly, this was a step beyond what um, what anyone expected would come out of, of Nini's mouth. The one last piece is something that I grapple with and don't know entirely what to say about is the role that Miss Lawrence plays in that scene. Oh, yes. Um, because yes. when we're talking about masculinity being dismantled or diminished um, and... Um, and an episode that's largely structured around um, separate spheres, right? The women retreat to have their conversation and the men to have theirs. And the place of Miss Lawrence is a really complicated one, obviously goes with the men on the basis of sex, but also on the basis of not being a principal character on the show. But, but being in a very awkward position in that kind of dialogue, um, since it was about whether or not masculinity needed to defend itself, Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I find that interesting. I still don't know entirely what to say about it. Well, you you were actually going to go. You went where I was going to go, was to talk about these different portrayals of masculinity. Mm-hmm. I mean, Nini, Nini knows, and this isn't a surprise to everyone. Nini knows. There are sometimes you just have to be very blunt. You do not call a black man a bitch. Mm-hmm. You just don't. You don't call any man a bitch, but you don't call a black man a bitch. So the fact that Peter restrained himself tells me that um, he was very aware that the paycheck was tied to his behavior or his paycheck is tied to um, to Cynthia because Peter allegedly has a temper, not in an abusive kind of way, but he, ha- he has a, a temper. So the whole conversation around bitch emasculating or bitch being a gender term that, you know, even women don't like. And I'll also add in that episode, hello, if gossip, if gossip is how we characterize women, then I don't know what to tell you. The Roa, the Roa men in particular of all the franchises, they gossip. Mm-hmm. They gossip. And I always say men should never gossip. They don't do it well. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's all kinds, you're right, there's all kinds of playing with masculinity or 
or traditional forms of masculinity that we see in Roa that we might not see other places. Mm-hmm. But again, you call, don't, 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 I mean, you can, but Mimi knew exactly what she was doing. And she also knew that Peter wouldn't be able to respond, right? Because yeah. Mimi's a bully. He could have responded, but then what happens with the row of paycheck? Well, it's complicated too because she doesn't actually call him a bitch. Her verbal skills are sort of off the charts. She says, don't be a bitch. Or, Or something about don't try to be a bitch, meaning don't get involved in our conversation yeah he was she was saying that only bitches get involved in only bitches get involved in women's conversation right right but that he has no place there it's is mm-hmm. it to say uh, i'm not calling you a bitch and i'm calling you a bitch at the same time or i will be calling you a bitch mind your place and that's what that's what viewers said all over twitter i mean there was a long campaign should we give peter a, a peach should we give him mm-hmm. a peach because he keeps sticking it his foot into women's business mm-hmm. right the subtitle I mean, for this episode is going to be like, was he a bitch? <laughs> or something about bitches because of like, I feel Bar- like I, I should have counted how many times we just dropped that word. <laughs> well, don't be a bitch. You are a bitch. Claims <laughs> masculinity and bravo. The politics I, I of bitchiness. Really, <laughs> yeah. I, find it, I find it really fascinating that that episode, a lot of the content comes through confessionals. So you have the scene itself, but then there's all of the commentary on the scene. And some of the more interesting things are actually said to no one at all, slash to everyone, the entire audience. But there is this um, wonderful moment when they interview Portia, who says um, something along the lines of, you do not call a man a bitch. And at the same time, she says, but we are talking about Peter here. And she gives a sort of wink to the camera as if, well, if there's anyone that you could say that about, it's going to be this guy. Right. Right. So, okay. Um, let's, let's change the flow of a little bit um, and bring us back to 2020, <laughs> which, you know, if, we, hmm, if, if ever there was a year that was a bitch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How has the how has the pandemic changed the flow of your typical um, work TV life? Has your TV life taken on a new significance, or have you worked more? Tell us, tell us about your viewing life. So we've always had my husband and I have always had a weeknight ritual where we watch TV before bed, and uh, now we don't have anything else. So we watch TV before bed on weeknights on weekends. It's sort of what keeps us sane. Um, and as I said, I'm really sad that Bravo can't film, and I'm worried what we may have to do without it for a period of time, um, because we have lots and lots of time on our hands. And so, yes, that for me has meant um, watching shows that I haven't seen yet, um, binging Vanderpump, binging Shaw's. And, and so on. And if you guys have recommendations for what to try next, I'm all ears. Have you watched Summer House? Yes. Um, I think Summer House is going to be the dark horse that like brings it all together because they can still film in the pandemic. And I think they're right. the only show that will be able to do that. Um, in the Why way is that? that? Because it's all filmed essentially in one location. So I think what's going to end up happening. Oh, because they could essentially all just go to the summer house and be quarantined 
in the house. Yeah, it's going to be like a Big Brother type of like we're going to film you. That would at be all interesting. Times. Yeah, I think Summer House is going to like take the place of Vanderpump Rules in the next year right. or so. Mark mark that down. <laughs> well, Vander Vanderpump Rules seems to be falling apart before our very eyes. Yeah. And maybe deservedly so. Talk about a show that's really out outstayed its welcome. Yeah. Yeah, they really need to revamp it. It's all about hopping over to YouTube on the Sheena Shea channel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, shout out to Sheena. Yeah, it's not like she was that close with the people that got fired. So it's like she's having her own Vanderpump Rules spinoff with uh, Tom Sandoval and Ariana. Which I really love because it... You know, she sort of was the linchpin connecting Vanderpump Rules to um, Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Like when they did that like two part series that went from Sheena and Beverly Hills. Yeah. And she was always treated as like the outcast by the other women on that show, like Stassi and Kristen and, and Katie. But to now have this position where not only... Kristen and Stassi are gone and like no one's going to talk about them again. But then like to have her be the one that's like at the top to me is the ultimate power move of Sheena. And then to have that ability now to kind of move even away from Vanderpump Rules and Bravo and have her own YouTube show, her own podcast. I'm really trying to suck up to Sheena because I hope that like she wants to come on the show and talk about history. (laughs) (laughs) From reality star to influencer to history com- converse, 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 participant. I couldn't yeah. think of the word off the top of my head. Yeah. I do really love Sheena. Yeah. Can, can, I ask you a, can I ask you a question, Noah, about non-Bravo TV? So during the pandemic, I discovered a BBC show called Merlin. Mm-hmm. And it's like five seasons about Merlin and King Arthur's court uh, with like a, you know, excellent balance of like campiness. And I was wondering if you had seen it and if you had what you thought as an actual medievalist. (laughs) I haven't. Although medievalists get excited about popular TV that focuses on the Middle Ages. So usually it's Game of Thrones is the one that comes up very often. And lots of medievalists have been pressed into service to teach classes, you know, large enrollment classes on Game of Thrones and its medieval antecedents and things like that. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's it's often what we are, the dog and pony show for for a medievalist is going to be something in popular culture that like Game of Thrones. It, it, please excuse the pun, but the, is this going to be like the renaissance, or the renaissance of like medievalist scholarship in terms of like connecting popular television and popular culture with Game of Thrones to academic scholarship? Well, I'll tell you, medievalists are often um, bemoaning the fact that we get neglected, that um, we're sort of the forgotten field I think most of my colleagues think of it as, you know, oh, that thing that he does that I can't possibly understand and really don't want to bother trying. Um, uh, So, yes, we often are making a bid for relevance because we work in the pre-modern world, but we live in the modern one. So, yes, um, most people are looking for opportunities. The COVID has been a good one um, because the Middle Ages knew its pandemics really well. 
And so medievalists, historians of science, um, people who study Boccaccio in particular, because this Cameron is obviously a text about plague, have, have been pressed into service to sort of say, what has this looked like in the past? Um, so that's a great segue. Um, outside of Bravo, what have you been watching during the pandemic? Any recommendations for our listeners? So two shows that got aborted, um, unfortunately, and left us high and dry, but that I really, really enjoyed. Um, We're Here on HBO, which is a wonderful sort of maybe a kind of a queer eye, but uh, featuring drag queens and with a much harder hitting sort of um, we're going to places in America where there is really very little hope for queer people and um, putting on a drag show and seeing what kind of community we can we can build. Um, and that show is just endlessly fascinating and really touching. I loved it. Um, I watched The Good Fight, which also got aborted. Um, uh, you know, I'm so upset. I know. I know. I, I find that show really, really exciting. And it got aborted after the the one episode that felt like a real misfire to me. It just felt the 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 episode itself just did not did not uh, land for me. So we'll have to wait and see what they can do with the remainder of the series when they're allowed to film again. What was the um, um, good fight about? I haven't even heard of this. Uh, it's a CBS. It's a CBS original. Please, Noah, take it away. I mean, I don't know. I, I, it's hard to access because you have to subscribe to the CBS app, which is really annoying. Um, but it's a sequel to The Good Wife um, that is focused uh, much less on gender than on race. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just a really exciting uh, sort of um, well-plotted. I mean, it, the conceit is basically courtroom drama. Um, and it's, it's all about, you know, who will prevail in, a, you know, a, a courtroom battle, um, but is also incredibly topical, constantly dealing with political issues that it presses in all kinds of fascinating sort of parodic ways, um, very unsettling sort of depictions of uh, what resistance really looks like under Trump, um, what complicity looks like under Trump. Uh, what kinds of, I mean, in the most recent season, it's all about what kinds of secret um, sort of um, uh, uh, sort of plots have been uh, cooked up um, in order to protect and insulate power under Trump. And so, yeah, it's, it's a, a fascinating show. Yeah, it's really gripping this season. Memo 618, is that what it is? Or 862? It's something about the memo. Yeah. So there's memo out there that's that no one talks about and you should not be researching because it can, it can be cataclysmic, but it it, is a show that there's a slow build and some of the things that happen, I mean, just really brilliant writing to make it not just relatable, but they write it in a way. Diane, Diane, the the lead, what is her real name? Uh, uh, Berinsky, what is her real name? Christine Berinsky. Yeah, there we go. It, the show was all around, well, this season and last season, all of, around her hate for Trump. And so, like, she wakes up at the beginning of the season and thinks that Trump being president was all a dream. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which great. But we followed her from doing some, some little minor illegal things, uh, 
sabotaging things, being, you know, a resistor and to Trump. And what happens is her husband actually ends up um, working for the sons, for the son-in-laws, um, you know, Eric, Eric and uh, you know, yeah, Don, Don, Don Jr. You even tell that I've just had like a, I used to watch the Celebrity Apprentice. Like that was my favorite show, especially when they went live. But since, since the election, I have kind of put anything about Trump in this category. Mm-hmm. But the good, the good fight is great. And then there's like racial, race drama. But the writing, back to the writing, the writing is so good that you, you walk around thinking about this memo. I walked around thinking, do you think that's what happened? And I completely forget, or maybe it's because I watch too much reality TV, but you're drawn in. The acting is really terrific too. And it, and it features Audrey McDonald, who I, I could, I mean, she doesn't sing, but I could watch her, you know, do anything really. She's just really compelling to watch. I'm going to definitely check this out. Yeah. So I think you also watched Mrs. America. It's been yeah. this, you know, new hit series that so many people um, got really interested in, brought us back to the 70s and the battle for the Equal Rights Amendment, and of course, Phyllis Schlafly. And so I wanted to know how you weigh in on this debate over whether or not The Real Housewives is a feminist portrayal of women. And I think one of the things that I think about when I think of Mrs. America is the messiness it displays within the feminist movement of the seventies and how many different perspectives um, there are, especially that are conflicting. And I think about how that really applies in a lot of ways to the fights that, you know, Gloria Steinem and Roxanne Gay and, and others kind of engage in with those kind of battle lines that get drawn in how people see the real housewives. Yeah, I mean, I think what's so exciting about that show is that it takes both sides of the ERA movement and shows the kinds of compromises and really disappointing mistakes that are made um, on both sides. So you see the women's movement as filled with racism and homophobia. And then on the other side, you see a movement to confine women to the home that actually is producing the exact opposite is women who are, are working and uh, bringing the fight to Washington and going to law school and um, uh, professionalizing in all kinds of ways without knowing it and without being allowed to claim the status of a, of a worker. So, I, I mean, I guess the way I would sort of tackle the question of whether the Real Housewives is feminist would be to sort of pose the question about whether Phyllis Schlafly was a feminist. Um, Because that's certainly one of the things that Mrs. America wants to do is to show how Schlafly used the one role to which she was unquestionably entitled, the role of housewife, to launch one of the most influential political careers for a woman of her generation. Um, which is just a, a fascinating paradox. And, and paradoxically, that meant that she embraced a horrifically regressive sexual politics that was based on repudiating equal rights and repudiating equal access for women. Um, and then perversely and incredibly selfishly, she uses anti-feminism as a tool for her own self-advancement for a kind of you know very individualistic, you know, will to power. 
Um, and then she made all of her acolytes into workers um, who, who really were the working class. I mean, they had to work for her unquestioning. Um, you know, I mean, there were all kinds of resistances to her authority, but ultimately their role was to, to work tirelessly to claim the right not to work. Um, so I guess what that illustrates for me is the ways in which an individual or a cultural form or genre, and I'm thinking, of course, about farce, but um, in this context, thinking about um, more modern genres, how they can work at cross purposes with what appears to be the manifest or even the explicit ideology. Um, and very specifically, um, imagining that a woman or a female character can pose a threat to patriarchy when she conforms to all of its conventions and rules. Um, and there's a long history in um, cultural studies, I guess you might call it, of um, uh, feminists who've um, sort of made that kind of argument about genres that you wouldn't expect. Um, Carol Clover um, has made very famously argued something similar about slasher films. I just uh, recently read uh, the the new edition of that book um, in which she writes a, a second preface and says, the takeaway for some reason has been that slasher films are feminist. Um, and she, she says, I really need to correct that misperception because in fact, slasher films are filled with um, misogynistic topoi and re really need to be sort of um, understood as deploying misogyny in all kinds of ways. But then she's interested in the, the modes of identification that can allow um, the viewer to come away with um, a very different kind of sexual politics from uh, that genre. And then Janice Redway has done something very similar for romance novels, and I think that you could go on and on about, about that. I think of my own work on farce and about the gender politics of farce as sort of moving in that same direction. It's all fundamentally um, anti-feminist, and yet I would say there are all kinds of feminist and queer things that are going on in, in farce as a genre. I guess the, the question that it comes down to for me um, in thinking about this is, is someone like Vicki Gumbelson a, a feminist? Could we actually say that? It sort of um, uh, almost turns the stomach to even, uh, you know, speak those words out loud. Because um, Vicky is really a sort of a schlackly. Um, her homophobia was really horrific on the most recent season. Um, and, and, you know, despite her sort of claims that, no woman should depend on a man, you should have a career, you should be, and so on. Um, she, uh, you know, is upholding a lot of values that seem, as do many of the housewives, uh, upholding a lot of values that seem to be, um, you know, sort of congruent with the, the traditional expectation of the housewife, um, dependent upon a man, um, you know, cosseted and protected and, and shielded and so on. Um, but she's also constantly betraying those values and refusing a subordinate or recessive position. Um, and that the, the way she went out and, and really with a, a bang to say, fuck you, this is my show, um, to, 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 to really everyone. It was to Andy, um, probably first and foremost, but to everyone, um, was another way of saying, um, this, this franchise, this entire, the entire conceit for this show would be bullshit 
um, without me. So you can sideline me, you can distance me, you can refuse to seat me where I wish to be seated, and so on and so forth. But but ultimately, the the show really lacks something without her. And in fact, it's sort of hard to imagine. I mean, the, the show was sort of going downhill for the past few seasons, but it's really hard to imagine that show without her. So now, in season two, we are playing a game or really not a game, kind of a game. It's called Allegedly, where we pick something and we imagine all the backstory and all the dynamics that we do not get to see on the camera. So it's kind of our opportunity to be critical and shady at the same time. So today's topic, uh, Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, um, Dorit and P.K. Kemsley, went into business with a Bugu de Beppo restaurant in Encino, California. Um, For those of you that don't know, Encino is the valley. Uh, So, you know, off of the 101, not really L.A. anymore. Uh, Somewhere in a lot of traffic between L.A. proper and, like, Kardashian zone. Um, let's, let, let's, let's say it a little bit differently because you went to UCLA. Yes, I did. It's a little bit, it's a little, many UCLA professors and faculty live over there, but the, 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 the jewel in the crown is that's where the Jackson family compound is. Oh. Mm. Yes, yeah, see? Let's, let's, but, but, and, Casey is absolutely right. This is the valley. What goes on there between UCLA or, or Sunset Boulevard and the Kardashians? It's an odd choice, if you will. Yes. And so it's this one Buca de Beppo. It's not even all of Buca de Beppo. They chose a single location in Encino, and they went into business with them um, where Dorit got to redecorate a single room in the establishment. I'm, I feel like I'm a little bit at a loss because I've never been to Encino, and I've never been to a Buca de Beppo. I oh. do know Dorit and Piquet, though, and... You've asked, is this a way to hide money? How could it not be? Is it really my answer? It, it has to be something incredibly shady. It just seems like that's what they do, that there's always something about masquerade going on, that they're sheltering something, keeping something from view. I just don't know what it could possibly be or why they would make such a spectacle of it. The, the idea that she's decorating just one room of a restaurant that's very down market doesn't make any sense to me at all. And it's such a kitschy, um, you know, mass dining family style sort of a restaurant, right? There's zero glamour to Buca de Beppo, mm. right? It seems like it's such a misfit for who the Kemsleys style themselves to be. Mm. Yeah, I have nothing for you other than what the blogs say, and they say that the owner is the godfather um, to one of their children, one of the the, the Kimsley's children. Oh, really? But, yes, yes. It, that's what the that's what the blogs say. So maybe there's that connection, but I think it's got to be something. It's got to be something bigger, or maybe Bravo was trying. I think I think it's Casey or Matt said this. Maybe Bravo was trying to make uh, a parallel between Vanderpump the Vanderpump restaurant and Dorit's little project, which there's no comparison. Mm. So I, 
it's odd. I don't even know if I can give you fan fiction or critically engage. I haven't been to Buca de Beppo, but I know people who have. I imagine it's a lot like Margiano's. So I actually looked up uh, rankings for like chain Italian restaurants. Oh, yes. So like Maggiano's like tops out in like position one or two in terms of like the top 10 Italian chains in the U.S. So Buca de Beppo ends up pretty much tied with the Olive Garden. And it kind of just depends on like how kitschy you want the decor, (laughs) right? Like Buca is kitschier than Olive Garden. Um, I have been twice, once in high school uh, with like a chorus trip to Anaheim for like a competition and they actually bust us from Anaheim to the Huntington Beach location at the Bella Terra Mall. Um, and even though it's family style, like, and there's been complaints on the Yelp reviews for this Dorit Buca de Beppo that the portions say they're one thing and they're really not. So like you like spend all this money for this portion and it's like not enough to go around. That is my experience of Buca de Beppo. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a really, really interesting choice for them. And I, I have to wonder how much the lawsuit cleaned them out financially. Right. And if this was a way to stash some money with like a friend of the family so that something was safe. So what is the significance of their move? Because they moved to a new house. I mean, that old house was already very strange. It was on the one hand luxurious, but also really badly designed and, and sort of ugly. Um, But what is the significance? Because they've moved to the Valley, right? Yeah, they moved to the Valley. And I don't know if you caught it, Noah and Jessica, but is it just me or does the new house that PK and Dorit moved into look exactly like it could be a Vanderpump kids house, right? It looks like they have the same cookie cutter house that Tom and Jax, you know, and the rest are all buying and moving into. Well, let me, let me, let me clarify something, Casey. And for our listeners, it could very well be the same house because some reality shows, have the same house and they just switch out cats. That's a very CBS, Big Brother, VH1. Oh, what was the rock and roll show when Vince Neil was on with uh, uh, MC Hammer? Come on, come on, Max. There was a VH1 house. Simple Life, I think. Surreal Life. Surreal Life. I was going to say, Simple Life is a Paris Hilton. Yeah, that was Paris Hilton. Surreal (laughs) Life with uh, Ron Jeremy. Yes, Ron Jeremy. So Surreal Life, that house that they were in, was has been used in many, many, many uh, reality TV shows. It's over by Justin Bieber. How do I know this? Because I watch TMZ. Now, <laughs> now, the house that they're in. Do we really know that they're in that house, or could be it could be a prop house? And maybe this is just. I mean, no, there's got to be something shady going on. No, because you know what. They probably took a step down in housing. Well, Breck and Meyer bought the house next door to Tom and Ariana. Breck and Meyer uh-huh. is in the guy from Rat Race and what was he in? Road Trip. Uh, you know, uh-huh. those like raunchy comedies from like the early 2000s. 
late 90s. And so, and he actually had to pay a little bit more for his identical house to Tom and Ariana. And, um, and of course, I looked at pictures, right? And so I compared Brecken Meyer's house to Tom and Ariana's online. And it is like exactly the same house, um, you know, down to like the pool in the backyard. And, you know, so of course I did the deep diving on various websites just to confirm that like, yes, everything in this neighborhood looks the same. It's like when you drive around, you know, various neighborhoods in Orange County and you get deja vu, you know, being like, well, it says I'm in Irvine, but it feels like I'm in Ladero Ranch. You know what I mean? Right. Um, well, that master- kind of like master planned community sort of element. Yeah, it's definitely master planned community. Which does that even make her a housewife of Beverly Hills anymore? Because I argue, no. And I feel like she's even less Beverly Hills than someone like Kyle, who has I, I think actually, more of a claim to Beverly Hills. No, I actually well, Kim think like Westlake, West right? Kim lived all the way out Thousand Oaks or Westlake Village. Yeah, but um, um, oh. I'm pretty sure that Kyle and Dorit are very close to each other neighbors, geographically. Yeah. yeah, our neighbors. So I don't know if. Um, Kyle can claim housewife of Beverly Hills status anymore either. I guess she did give up her Allegedly. shop in Beverly Hills, right? Yeah. Well, and, um, you know, how great can this book adventure be? Because I feel like Dorit's kitchen window was like a total disaster. Say whatever you want. Say whatever you want. I think H&H needs to take a book journey to Dorit's lemon room. That's what it's called, the Lemon Room at Buka de Beppa. Yeah, the Lemon Room by Dorit Kemsley at Buka de Beppa. What I love about the Buka de Beppa. Go ahead. Oh, we're going to say post COVID, way past COVID. Yeah, I'm going to be in a hazmat suit in Buka de Beppa. If it's still around, God willing. Um, what was I going to say? I just blanked on it. Um, you were going to tell us read on all of this. So one more time you broke up. You were going to tell us your read on all of this. Your allegedly read on why they're in the valley, why Buco de Beppo. You were going to, you were going to blow this story wide open. Yeah. <laughs> I have the truth. No, I think that like, I, I would not be surprised if this business venture is, door shut lights out within two years i i just don't see it as being a re like it only makes sense to me if you think that they're stashing money away somewhere because why would you okay so why wouldn't you do buco de beppo closer to beverly hills why are you doing it in the valley and like it, i don't know if you've seen the look mm-hmm. the owner is very good friends with um PK and he's the godfather to one of their children and and the owner is also very good friends with Vanderpump so that gave us like a whole 30 seconds of drama when they were like your friend no yeah like are we gonna get it (laughs) are we gonna get this franchise no but like why then wouldn't it be closer to Beverly Hills then I mean maybe this is what they can afford what they can afford as an investment right now The shadiest take of all. Noah, that was so shady. I feel like that's where we have to end allegedly. We just have to give you that last word. It was that was I think that's it. I think you just blew the the case wide open. That's it. I guess I guess what I'm revealing is that the real bitch is me. 
Can you tell us what's next for you and what you want people to know about your upcoming work? Sure. I, I'm on sabbatical this year, and so the sabbatical is supposed to be about starting a new book. Um, and I've been struggling mightily with that uh, sort of task. And I haven't yet figured out what the, the project is going to look like. I do have a title, though, and um, hopefully it's a good one. I'm thinking that the book should be called Impossible Middle Ages. And I mean a bunch of things by impossible, and I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about the, the thinking behind it. The, the book is inspired by a scholar I'm sure you guys know well, though I don't didn't know until recently, although this is someone who has a huge investment in medieval history and is therefore someone uh, who is really um, uh, you know, a crucial source uh, a crucial resource for medievalists. Um, this is Cedric Robinson. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I figure you guys would know him very well. Yeah. Let me tell you, you don't get that reaction from medievalists who have never heard of him, even though huge amounts of his scholarship is really all about the period that we study. Mm-hmm. So I'm super inspired by his claim that Marxism has often worked to exclude or marginalize radical forms of political thought and social engagement that emerged from the medieval past and also from non-Western settings. Um, So for for Robinson, that includes black radicalism, but it also includes um, in this wonderful book of his called um, Anthropology of Marxism, um, he's interested in medieval, what he thinks are medieval socialisms, and even although this isn't really his focus, medieval feminisms. And the whole idea that there could be such a thing as medieval socialism, um, that's what I mean by impossible Middle Ages, finding something in the medieval past that should not be there. Um, but medieval feminism is also sort of belongs in that category. Um, and something I'm working on right now is the gesture that medievalists usually make when they're talking about something that looks like a radical sexual politics coming from a period that did not have the word feminism, did not have, um, you know, sort of uh, a coalitional political movement that could be called feminism, but then nonetheless looks like it is a radical contestation of patriarchy and say, well, isn't that a feminism and why couldn't we call it that? Um, Robinson sort of says something very similar in uh, Anthropology of Marxism, and I want to sort of follow in his footsteps and reclaim things about the Middle Ages that um, the Middle Ages is supposed to have lacked. And that means revolutionary social movements. It means um, sort of critiques of patriarchal domination. But it also includes things like atheism, which, you know, if if there's anything that people know um, about the Middle Ages or think they know about it, it is that it's an age of faith that was impossible to not believe or to disbelieve in the medieval period. And, and yet it isn't possible to believe without the threat of some kind of disbelief because otherwise you wouldn't call it belief. Right? It wouldn't be a leap of faith if it didn't require some kind of challenge to the possibility of faith. And, 
And so I'm interested in things like medieval socialism, medieval revolution, medieval feminism, medieval atheism, and things like that. And so, yeah, that's the, the project as I conceive it, Impossible Middle Ages. That's so cool. And how would people get in touch with you if they want to learn more? Uh it's very easy to find me on the UC Davis website. Uh, just go to either the French and Italian department, french.ucdavis.edu, or the comparative literature department, um, and my faculty profile is there, and I'm always um, happy to answer an email. So um, reach out and, and contact me if you like. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. I enjoyed that. As always, you can find us at historiansonhousewives.com, where you can propose your own episode topic, ask us questions, and send us feedback. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at historiansh. And don't forget that you can like and review the podcast on your podcast platform. Thank you, Noah Gwynn. This show was brought to you with the support by... Barbara and Mark Spear, Saddleback Community College, Molly Callahan, Dr. Joaquin Galarza, Courtney Crow, Lara Loper, Kim Bettendorf, Louis Asio de Dios, and the Agipon Foundation. And remember, scholars do bravo too. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. 
For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.